I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. me, I can't even speak. I'll do that again. It is Thursday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Champions League Review and Q&A podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. You're hey, this week. It's me. It's Lawrence. There he is. Lawrence McKenna's here. Me, Lawrence. Yeah. It's doing? Chris Hennage as well. He's here as well. Hey. Very exciting indeed. Uh, Statman Dave's going to be joining us a little later on to talk Manchester United, of course. Uh, we are going to be That's reviewing sure. the Champions League action. Uh, we are going to be answering your questions. We are going to be previewing this weekend's action as well in association with family so do stay tuned for that in part two first up though it's thursday which means it's time for the whole of the week guys we haven't done it in a little while um the whole of the week of course is our favorite itunes review of the week if you want to be whole of the week all you have to do is click on the link in the description get involved let us know what you think of the podcast give us five stars that's what we ask uh, and you will be in with a chance of becoming whole of the week in chance of winning a six-pack of ferrero rocher that is the lovely prize that you do earn yourself. Uh, this week's whole of the week is no one because there have been no reviews on iTunes. Guys, come on. Click that link. <laughs> you really built that up there. <laughs> yeah, really ate it up to say it's no one. Um, there, that there's was the been, worst. Do you know, it's, it's almost as if people don't want Ferrero Rocher. You've got to send reviews, guys. It helps us. It's a bit of emotional blackmail that I'm trying right now to try and get some reviews. You know, it black, works. Yeah, blackmail works. Just ask the FA. Uh, moving swiftly on, <laughs> let's, let's review the Champions League action, guys. There's only one place to start. Well, there's actually many places to start. We're going to start with Chelsea against Roma, arguably the most Oof. entertaining game of the midweek action. Frio, it finished, Chris, but Chelsea were 2-0 up in the first half, throwing away a lead and throwing away three points. Yeah, and I bet that probably really frustrated Conte because he's he's big on his defence and the fact that they gave up a lead that was seemingly comfortable and yet also the most dangerous scoreline in football if, if things are to be believed is is frustrating but I thought Roma were fantastic um, not just in terms of coming back but you look at the goals they scored the the Dzeko one in particular I love the way that he just adapts his run for the flight of the ball um, I can think of so many players who wouldn't think to just kind of stretch their gear out a little bit just to come on to that at the right time. But I, I think Chelsea don't seem as efficient as they did last season. That's the key difference here, is that you watch them and they're good and they've got good players and all this stuff, but 
the balance of the squad doesn't seem the same to me. It's eerily reminiscent of um, the season after Mourinho won the title where maybe some of it is um, complacency, some of it is a bad transfer window where they didn't address what they needed to address. And I think all that puts together to a squad that, yeah, it's got a lot of talented players in it, Hazard and Bakayoko and, and all this, but it's, it doesn't feel like it's as perfectly balanced and, and put together as it was last season, which is mad when you consider that really last season was a definition of, of pragmatism and how to adapt. I mean, Conte was frustrated, Lawrence. Uh, he didn't seem too happy after the game, uh, crying mm. about injured players as Mourinho put it himself in a thinly disguised jab in his own post-match press conference. I mean, how much sympathy have you got for Gonte? Because, uh, you know, he's bemoaning the lack of options, the injuries that Chelsea have got. Obviously, Kante's a big miss for them. He seems to be stemming from the frustration he had in the summer. We saw these reports uh, over the transfer window that he wasn't happy with uh, the business Chelsea were doing. They, yes, brought in a number of players, but not uh, as many as Conte wanted to be able to enable the, the club to compete in these extra competitions in the Champions League this season, do you think his, his frustration, do you think his, his anger is justified? Do you think it's justified? Um, I mean, obviously, at the beginning of the season, possibly so. But then I think every manager um, has spoken about how they need to adapt and those sort of things after the transfer window. Most of them are talking about shutting it earlier. Roma would be actually a really good example of being quite pragmatic in the way that they sign players rotate their squad. They lost Mo Salah, who's probably one of the um, more key players in, in the previous season for them. And then uh, I've managed to get the best out of someone like Eden Dzeko, who more recently has been good for them, but maybe uh, flattered to deceive when he was at Man City. And I think a lot of people said that didn't seem like there was um, uh, an assured nature to the way that Chelsea were playing. It didn't seem like there was um, for want of better, an, author- an authority to the way they were passing the ball around. So it never felt like they had a control on the game that um, made them look like the Chelsea that maybe we remember when they looked so dominant. There wasn't really a dominance that you associate with uh, Conte's teams. And so instead of putting that down to signings, which, I mean, obviously we can put it out there, I would also put that down to coaching. Um, and it, 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 we were talking about the evolution of any side. We've obviously been very critical of the likes of Jurgen Klopp, who plays an intense kind of football, but hasn't been pragmatic enough. I still think that there's a reason that Conte uh, plays the way that he does and has kept a lot of similarities to the previous season. I think it's because he's sure um, of the way that he wants the players to play and he's sure of the way that he wants the team to evolve. It's it's good for him he can have Morata back. It's good for him um, that when you know certain injured players do come back, the team's definitely going to get better. And I think 3-3 in the Champions League is probably part of the spectacle the Champions League offers. So as much as he'll be frustrated, Chelsea will also be frustrated. I don't think it puts them in a terrible position. Hmm. If I can channel my inner Nico Morales here, it's almost as if he Please do. wrote some notes about the game. Um, he might say, Chris, that you know Chelsea lack diversity in the game plans as executed by Conte. Um, the fact that Conte relies so heavily on his first 11, uh, this is part of the reasons for Chelsea's problems that they're facing. I mean, how much sympathy can we have for Conte when he does seem so reliant upon that, that same set of players? I mean, eight players from the Crystal Palace defeat the weekend started this game against Roma in midweek. And also when uh, Chelsea seems so reluctant to use the youth prospects they've got at the club. Uh, not only is there seemingly no way for them to come through into the first team now in a situation that might demand it, but they've got 30 players out online. Players like Tammy Abraham, who are performing well at Swansea. Uh, players like Loftus-Cheek, who 
before the injury or before we went at Crystal Palace. I'm, I'm just finding it hard to feel too sorry for Conte in his current predicament. I, I understand why. You, <clears throat> excuse me, why you don't have a great deal of sympathy, probably because you're a Spurs fan, and, and I don't mean that in well, the, yeah. the sense that you're a rivalry. I mean in the sense that you've integrated young players into the first team setup in a way that's quite admirable, and I imagine. Uh, envy-inducing for, for teams like Chelsea because you've got the likes of Harry Winks who comes in and, and I actually thought, as we'll come to discuss, was probably one of the better Spurs players the other oh, night yeah. at, um, at Real Madrid. I, I think that's the difficulty Chelsea have is that they've become so boom and bust in their managerial cycle. You go back from, I would say, Mourinho onwards, maybe even Mourinho the first time around. That was only a, a two, three-year spell. Yes, it, it garners them a lot of trophies and and the, the perhaps the... The, the sliding scale of comparison or the, at the other end of the pole, if you will, is Arsenal, who have maintained loyalty for far too long and it hasn't allowed them to build anything notable. Chelsea have the same problem, but for the opposite reasons, because they're always changing coach. It's very difficult to actually build each coach is very different to the last one, I find. there's no It's not like, for example, Swansea or Southampton, where the manager is brought in to fit the structure that is already built there. Often Chelsea bring in a high-profile manager that they think can win them something. And with that comes a lot of different sets of maybe skills and approaches. And, I mean, you just need to look at the difference between the way Mourinho likes to play, which is is often with a back four, um, and then compare it to Conte, who has used a back three almost exclusively during his time there. It's... Um, it's a very difficult proposition for them. I know Masanda sounded off recently. Um, and you've obviously got Tammy Abraham as well. He was another good example that you referenced. There comes a point where you have to just give them the faith. And they've done that with Christensen. Now, whether that's by luck or design, I'm not too sure personally. But I think, yeah, they have to, for me, at the end of this season, sit down and decide what the actual vision for this is. Because it's all well and good hoovering up that talent, keeping it, mm. nurturing it, developing it. But if it's not with the end product of it playing for the first team and is instead just to sell to clubs like Watford and places like that, it it doesn't really become that effective to me. It, it's a decent money earner, I guess, but in the long run, I imagine that the gain is is minimal at best. I mean, Chris speaks of boom and bust there, Lawrence, with regards to Chelsea's managers. Do you think we could be seeing another bust situation pretty soon? I mean, it's been an up-and-down season for Chelsea. Of course, there was that opening day home defeat to Burnley. They were on a run of eight games undefeated where they seemed to be impressing. Uh, and I'm sure many Chelsea listeners are going to be uh, even more annoyed that we didn't really focus on them then, but are focusing on them now and they seem to be in trouble. Um, but... You know, for Chelsea, it doesn't seem like they're going to defend their title here. Uh, yes, the injuries to Murata, to Kante, as I mentioned, are having an impact. But this situation with Conte that does seem to be rumbling over the summer, do you think it could result in him maybe not even lasting the season at Chelsea? Well, I mean, there's definitely other options, but always for Chelsea. Um, I think in this is the first manager that's really broken with the way that Mourinho played before or the way that any manager um, in that phylum chose to play. A lot of people have done variants on the way that Mourinho played. A lot of people have done variants with that squad. This is the first manager to put, or at least uh, successfully put their own stamp on the squad. And so with that, where do you then take the team? I think Conte very quickly runs out of maybe patience with the side. Maybe he also misses where he used to be in Italy. Even if Conte does leave, he still left quite a few good building blocks within this side. Um, Bakioko, Kante, uh, Morata, 
maybe Hazard, I don't know if uh, Conte is the reason that Eden Hazard's staying. Um, there's a lot of great players that need in the back line with Aspilicueta and then Courtois in goal. You still have the spine of a team there. So I don't think there's any reason to panic. Um, you know, you can have, you can leave a field fellow if you like for one season. And I think um, in many ways that might benefit Chelsea especially if they're looking for a new manager after Conte leaves. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. You know, he obviously turned around a difficult situation last season. Um, I think there's reason to believe he could do the same this year. But yeah, there just seems to be a little bit of uncertainty. There's this, there's a few question marks, I think, over Conte. I think it was definitely um, easier to strike last year, though, wasn't it? And mm, I think, of course, you know, it was different there was this the season. same dominance. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you've got to give Chelsea credit, though, as well. If anyone can uh, quell a bad turn it's them like their ability to self-write is is actually really impressive because you look how long it took man united to do it when Moyes came in and then van hall chelsea what was it Mourinho leaves when was it like late late winter Mm. and then they kind of carry through and then the next year they win the league like it's that's impressive i don't care what you say about their where they're at the minute their ability to kind of Spot the problem, fix the hole. It's impressive. Yeah, their approach has got its downsides, but it doesn't work for them in, in the cold, hard currency of silver, it's fair to say. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure Conte is going to be there next summer, but I do think it will last this season. It'll be interesting to see if he can turn around what is definitely a difficult patch. Uh, I mean, Chris, you were speaking about how good Roma were in this game. Adnan writes in on Twitter, uh, with everyone talking about how great Akadi, Mertens, Higuain and Dybala are, don't you think Edin Dzeko should also be considered in that category? Of course, as you mentioned, he scored that fantastic volley in the game. 30 goals in 36 games for Roma in 2017, I believe. Um, do you think he should be uh, mentioned in the conversation with some of these other highly rated strikers in Europe? Yeah, I think so. In, in terms of form at this precise moment, undeniably, um, the goals that he's scoring, the goals that Icardi's scoring, I must confess I'm not seeing a huge amount of Dybala. So at this moment, I can't really include him in that conversation. I think he's wonderfully talented and all that. Um, they're scoring wonderful goals. You just need to look at Icardi's second, I think it was, yeah, second against Milan at the weekend. You look at Dzeko's last night on the volley, and then it, I would say even his, even the one to give them that third goal as well, that was a, a good finish in my mind as well. Mm. Um, I think the only difference is, with the greatest of respect to Dzeko, is that he's been at City, and, and I wouldn't say that Roma was a, a downwards move, but he's he's not as young and as brimmed with potential as say like Icardi is. That's that's the only difference for me is is when people get excited about players like this, it's because they think of the potential of what could still be to come. Like Icardi potentially goes to a, a bigger club than Inter and does even even better and even more. Whereas Dzeko, I don't think that he goes anywhere up from this. I think Roma is is where he's at now for a, a good while until something changes. Uh, you say one now, so I think that's fair to say. Um, for all the problems they're talking about with Chelsea, Lawrence, they are still top of the group. They're still undefeated on seven points. Uh, got a very right, good yeah. chance now of going through to the next stage, potentially top with Atletico Madrid uh, struggling. Um, they only managed to draw a Carabag um, in midweek. Yeah, there are quite a few interesting results in the Champions League this week. I'm going to try and retouch. RMCF writes in saying, Are Atletico Madrid in serious danger of dropping down into the Europa League? I would love to see that happen, to be honest. Right? I suppose his username well, is a Madrid fan. You, you would love to see that happen. Or he would no, no. Uh, retouch RMCF, who's uh, clearly a Madridista, is uh, yeah, yeah. hoping they, uh, they do. 
I mean, it looks like they are. I mean, they do, they do they do sit behind um, Roma in the in the group. So I mean, it's three not, points adrift. It's not of, of Roma. Uh, they are three points adrift of Roma. But then you look at uh, the then the, their next Champions League is actually against Carabag again. But they're at home. You'd hope that with the the new uh, home stadium that they have, they can get a result there. They then. They've got a lot of big games to do. I mean, there's, you know, in uh, just before they play Roma, which is probably a crunch game in the Champions League as well, they also have Real Madrid just the weekend before that. Mm. Three days in between both those games. Huge for a squad, which, you know, they probably going to be quite tired after playing Real Madrid. Um, and you'd imagine that by the time that they play Roma, they're going to have a good idea as to whether they can get out of that position. So it would also be interesting to see whether um, the charismatic and uh, pragmatic manager that Simeone is, whether he chooses to give up on the Champions League and just go for the league in this one, because mm. they might actually know where they're going to be by the time that they play Real Madrid on the 19th, 19th of November, and then Roma three days later. Liverpool, Lawrence, hammered Mario Ball, yeah. 7-0, um, a big win. I believe it's the biggest They now actually hold the record for the... Yeah. Yeah, they hold the, they hold the record for the biggest home win and the biggest away win. I think they mm. equal the record for the biggest home win, and they set the record for the biggest away win in the Champions League, so... Big win, lots of goals scored, but it was to be expected, wasn't it? How excited can we get about this? Don't, don't get exceptionally excited because I think they, Maribel played perfectly into Liverpool's hands in this game. Um, but at the same time, don't uh, put it down because I think it showed there were, there were positive elements for each. Bear in mind that Maribel were only hammered 3-0 by Sevilla um, and Liverpool still have to play them again. So I think there still has to be an element of respect. That Is it 3-0 a hammering? Is that a hammering? Um, I think in terms of the way that the game actually went, it possibly could have been more. That's definitely more, more bad. The positives come out this way. Trent Alexander-Arnold scored. Firmino got a couple of goals. Salah got a couple of goals. Uh, goals and Coutinho uh, slotted one in alongside Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who has been looking brighter and brighter by the game for them. Hmm. So uh, I think that's a great positive. Could, I mean, some Liverpool fans are sort of uh, framing this as a turning point potentially given the negativity around Liverpool's recent think, results? A, a true turning point for Liverpool is not one game. I think Klopp's uh, tenure has proven that. Mm. It, it comes down to consistency, which was what we said from the very start when he came in at Liverpool. And Liverpool had, had fantastic attacking seasons under uh, the likes of uh, the likes of Brendan Rodgers and were very solid under the likes of Rafa Benitez. But it was about the consistency which let those managers down. So And he, he still hasn't implemented that. So I'll, I'll get excited when they put 10 back to back. Well, could they take the momentum from this game, Lawrence, and get you excited by being Spurs this weekend? I mean, we'll talk about it in more detail in part two in the family preview coming up. But Albin the Albino, at 50 Shades of Hendo, has written in saying, what do you think Liverpool's midfield should be against Spurs? And it's an intriguing one, isn't it? Because we're expecting Liverpool potentially to attack Spurs. How would you like to see them set up in the middle of the park? Well, it's interesting, actually, because that was something I didn't really review in the uh, Maribor uh, section. James Milner played a very solid role in Liverpool's midfield and looked, I mean, essentially had a man-of-a-match performance uh, mm, by not looking yeah. overly sort of uh, overly attacking or um, to, by doing anything which particularly Im impressed. Um, and so I think there's something to be impressed with there. I'll be interested to see if Klopp starts him two games back-to-back -back and sees how he uh, combats that Spurs midfield. It, they do need someone who's going to sit deeper, especially considering the way that um, Spurs decide to play their attacking midfielders. And so I'd love to see someone like Milner with a bit more control, not just charging around doing whatever he needs to, and also able to fit in with other players alongside a 
Wijnaldum and a Chan, maybe someone like that. But you'd imagine he's going to switch it up in this game. I, I still think it would be a good idea to play the likes of Milner and two others. Mm. I also like the way the, the, the Liverpool sometimes drop Coutinho a little bit deeper. I think I'd rather see that in this game. Mm. Um, and then later on in the game, push him a little further up and allow him to feed balls a little bit further because he got marked out the game by um, by Young against Manchester United. I think a lot of Liverpool fans were disappointed by that because it was almost too easy to negate Liverpool. Um, and we'll, I mean, we'll see. I think it's a much more tactically adept manager that Liverpool faced on the weekend uh, rather than Marab. Yes. It's going to be an interesting game against Spurs. I think Spurs have got a few players coming back. Danny Rose, of course, featured in midweek against Madrid. Potentially Moussa Dembele coming back. I think it's been a big miss for Spurs. So, like I say, we'll talk about more in part two. For now, let's carry on with the Champions League review. Uh, another entertaining game we had in midweek, Chris, was, of course, Manchester City beating Napoli 2-1 in the end. Uh, another fantastic game to watch. Yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> it, I admired the fact that Napoli didn't try to change themselves for this game. They still played with a high line um, and they kind of went toe-to-toe with uh, Guardiola and City. And I think you could see there was a lot of respect for for each other in the post-match and the pre-match and all that stuff. Um, but I think, honestly, this just reaffirmed why for me at the minute, I, for the longest time I said Napoli were the, the, the most beautiful side in, in Europe in terms of the way they played. I think City are the most devastating, though, from an attacking standpoint, at least. Just because of the way that they cut teams open. And, and the thing with with De Bruyne in particular is that he's grown into this player where you don't necessarily have to show him the angle. He can seem to find passes and situations that, that don't necessarily present themselves to to the, the naked eye in that sense. And uh, there's a... A phrase that springs to mind, I forget the name of the coach that said it, it was an old Serbian coach that said that playmakers see motorways where other people see paths. And that's that's the best way I can think of, of describing De Bruyne is he's that player that just, he just sees things. And it's, uh, I imagine it's so frustrating um, for Chelsea to know that they let him go. And I don't mean to pile it on Chelsea because it wasn't really their decision. It was Mourinho that pushed them to do that. But at the same time, I'm so glad that he went because he's grown into this amazing uh, footballer that can change games, that can seemingly control them in a way that I didn't think he could for the longest time. Um, And that's the thing with this City side. I mean, they started amazingly last season as well. It's about the continuity now. I honestly think this stretch from mid-October to December is very often when the Premier League is won in my eyes. I mean, you look at Chelsea last year. This was when they went on that stupid run that set them up for the second half of the season. And I think if City keep this going, it gets to the point where you look at those Manchester derbies as title-defining, which is, from a neutral's perspective, as someone that doesn't have a horse in that race, it's fantastic. Harry, HJD Cornish, long-time listener, uh, great question again. He says, have Napoli set the foundations of how to beat this City side? Of course, City very impressive in that first half an hour. Um, but in that second half, that seems to be where... Napoli seem to become more effective, um, especially when they're oppressing City. Do you think they, they've shown a template of how we could potentially beat Guardiola City now? Um, possibly. I think that's the thing. We're still... I, I still think we're learning a lot about this City side in terms of how to beat them because I don't think the weakness has become painfully evident yet. Um, 
in in a slightly similar way to that Chelsea side last year, the 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 weakness, if you will, or the way to play them was to match them. But the problem with that was is that you hadn't had the 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 time of uh, understanding and the the what's the word I'm looking for here the the period of integration with that system and that style, which meant that they were always more refined at it. They were always more fluent with it. There's no way you're going to be able to do that because this has taken time. This has taken, you could argue, a season to implement. Um, and I think, as they've shown, just sitting off them isn't necessarily the greatest idea as well. I think, look, Napoli weren't, uh, didn't exactly make it difficult for City by playing that high line, but I don't think dropping 10, 15 yards kills them either because they seem to be able to find those spots. And I think that's why he went after fullbacks. So I think he realised that he needed something a little bit different out there. Um, and I think as time progresses, we'll learn how to play against the City side. But I don't think at this point there's an obvious, this is where you get them. Mm, very interesting. Uh, let's get Statman Dave involved then. Because not only are we going to talk Manchester United now, but we're going to talk Real Madrid versus Tottenham Hotspur and expected goal. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dave, welcome back. How's it going? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Voice is, is slowly dying. Oh, yeah. Um, I need some sleep. But apart from that, I'm good. Save that voice, mate, because we're going to talk Manchester United. And uh, first, Real Madrid against Tottenham. Now, myself, hadn't watched this game. I thought it was a fantastic result. I thought it was a fantastic performance from Spurs. Uh, I was very impressed with the way Pochettino set up his team, uh, the way individual players performed. But maybe I'm biased. You know, if I was going to channel my inner Nico again, he might say that the Spurs got lucky, Dave. He might point to the expected goals. He might say that Real Madrid, uh, the rough expected goals, some of them was 2.1, whereas for Spurs it was 0.8. He might say that Spurs were truly lucky not to have conceded more than one goal. Of course, you might refer to the uh, Benzema chance that he really should have scored, where Hugo Lloris made that fantastic save. Would you agree, though, in, in general, that Spurs were, were lucky in this game? Did they not earn a point, at least? I don't, I don't think they were lucky, but you know, you, you, you talk about expected goals as a measure. You can also look at the shots on target. For example, Real Madrid outshot Spurs on shots on target 6-2. to two. They also outshot them with shots 20-11. to 11. It's a similar thing. Expected goals obviously quantifies where the shot's on the pitch and, and the likelihood over the past X amount of years that that shot's gone in. But I think the thing with Spurs, it's a change in Spurs. Spurs are becoming more of a counter-attacking side. I watched the um, Huddersfield-Tottenham um, game on the train back up, uh, back down, sorry, to London. 
this afternoon. And I think the thing with Spurs is they're going more counter-attacking. They're not as pressing as much. It's similar to kind of like Brendan Rodgers' evolution of Liverpool from a you know very boring possession-based side to a team that hit people on the break. And that's kind of what you're seeing from Spurs. So it is a Spurs performance. But again, you know, I, I liken it to the United performance at Liverpool at the weekend. You know, a keeper makes a cracking save in both of the games and earns a point for his side. <laughs> the thing that I like, you know, a question is, is that the media and how fans have taken the standpoint on both of those games. Spurs are seen as the champions, the heroes. You made a point on Twitter saying that, Adam. And they defended. They pressed, but they defended. Mm. Man United defended, but they didn't press. They sat back and they controlled the space. Why is one style of football really seen in our in our media and, and the football fans in this country and around the world that support Premier League sides so against this defensive style? It's as effective. Controlling space is as, as effective as controlling um, you know, the pressing style and the triggers and that type of thing in the opposition's half. Why is it? They both got a point. They both played well. They both there's, defended well. They both had keepers well, that made saves. One, one, of them was play, one of them was playing the best team in the world currently <laughs> and the champions, okay. and the other team was playing <laughs> Liverpool. Okay, so for the Liverpool this week, what was the score? Oh, yeah, well, that's they, against Maribor. Okay, let, let, let me finish. So it was 7-0 to Liverpool, right? Did you watch that game? Yes. Did you see Maribor try and play out of the press and how that was completely stupid and that cost them three of the goals? Hmm. In they the played into Liverpool's hands, as, as Lawrence They're said. Yeah, but Mar- Dave, Maribor actually... Dave, what's, the, what's the expected goal? What's the expected goal for zero shots? <laughs> Zero, obviously. Yeah, exactly, Dave. So what, what was the Manchester United's expected goals in the second half against Liverpool at Anfield? Yeah, but this is the thing. You're, you're again, now you're using stats to make a, an invalid point when I'm trying to talk about <laughs> stylistically the different styles of football and playing a press inside. Okay, right. Now I take you back to the Huddersfield Town versus Tottenham game. Spurs yeah. were so direct in that game. Why? Because Huddersfield press high up the pitch. If you bypass that press, you get into the channels where their centre-halves can't defend. They're two centre-halves. Um, I don't remember what the, one of the fellas' names is. The one's like Zanka. They can't defend wide areas. Go back to that game. Look at the Spurs' goals. A lot of them come from these wide areas. And again, Spurs were direct. Spurs were counter-attacking. But the problem is that now we, we see... I think we're blinded now by Mourinho. You're blinded by Mourinho. And our analysis is getting real poor of the situation. And, and, and you are. Fans we are. Like, <laughs> fans like crying about a, one, a, a draw away at Liverpool. That is a good result. Here's that'll Dave. go on to... Dave, and, and, and can I just say, I, I agree. I agree with you, Dave. Right? I'm not on the I'm not on the um, the beat Mourinho bandwagon because actually, I, I, as a Liverpool fan, I miss Rafa, the Rafa Benitez days. All right, and that's fine. Obviously, there's jokes around it, and I do think it's a valid point. I, I wasn't really using the stat, but it certainly worked as a punchline to say what's the what's the uh, expected goals for zero shots we go, we, we, we go at Anfield. But just, just correct me if I'm wrong, but before the game, you said you said to me, that before, before the game, you said to me, I get the feeling that Liverpool could be thumped by United here. Now, then Liverpool were not thumped and it was the opposite result. The difference is that... The opposite. You know, United, Liverpool didn't win the game. <laughs> Liverpool no, didn't no, create a big chance against them. Man, United created the biggest chance of the game. Sam Mignolet put in an absolutely incredible save. Liverpool would have been thumped. That goes in. United play on the counter-attack. Jurgen Klopp can't do what he did. Jurgen Klopp's escaped all this criticism. Jurgen Klopp didn't change Guys. his shape at all. <laughs> he didn't get more attacking. He kept three men in midfield because he knew United can counter-attack. Me... It was a good and game that, that's... Managers, but the analysis of the game has been so, so poor. It's been, a, it's been but, atrocious. Absolutely but the atrocious. But the, but the difference is, Dave, that actually Manchester United are in, 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 in isolation. I'd definitely say there's definitely poor analysis of the game. I wouldn't say anyone on this podcast has been guilty of that so far, 
But I'd also say that in terms of form, in terms of the way that people are portraying the two sides, there's a reason that Manchester United will be disappointed for that. I think Liverpool should be disappointed overall. Let me, overall. Dave, no, let, me just, let, me, let, me, let me bring back to Tom for a second because we... Let me bring it back to Tom for a second because we are going to talk about Manchester United. I just wanted to say that I, I almost agree with Dave's broader point in that there does seem to be an underappreciation maybe for the arts of defence as opposed to attack. I understand almost uh, the sort of broader direction you're going there. But I agree with Lawrence in that you know, the factors as, as teams, we're talking about Real Madrid v Tottenham, Real Madrid obviously the two times European champions now back to back. But I think it's a false equivalency to say Manchester United going to Liverpool and playing that way is the same as Spurs going to Real Madrid when Spurs, I think, yes, they defended well, but they also showed an ambition in playing two up front. That was how Pochettino set up his team. Yes, they well, okay. defended so well. Why did he but... do that? Why why did he do that, Adam? Why did he do that? Well, he said himself after the game that he wanted to surprise Real Madrid and catch them off guard almost by playing two up top. So, so tactically, he matched the system. Tactically, what Pochettino did against um, Real Madrid was press them and match their system. That makes a bad game. That, ev- that evens the playing field. Think about the Liverpool Spurs game when Klopp first took charge. Pressing all over the place. A terrible game. No chances. That's what Pochettino did. It was a defensive move to play two strikers. It wasn't an aggressive move. It was to counteract what they were doing. It was were to pin their chances for them, though. I'm not saying it didn't end your chances, but I'm saying that is a defensive move, not an offensive move in this game. But Dave, I think you're taking the premise that other people are arguing on and, and saying, OK, let's apply that same logic. I think when people are operating outside of that argument, then the reason that people would say you've got to be disappointed, or it, no one's even saying you have to be disappointed. I think a lot of people are just saying it because it's an easy stick to beat Mourinho with. I think... A lot of people would say, though, uh, with the way that Manchester United has been informed and Liverpool look like a weaker side, and then you've also got to say, well, Real Madrid have got an incredible team, an incredible squad, and Spurs, in comparison, again, don't have that exact same... Not They're not able to compete on the same level. So there's, there, there are big differences. It's all well and good comparing the stats or the way that the two managers played, but there's so many outside factors of that, which maybe you, they can't measure in the way that the two teams line up in terms of stats or psychology or all those sorts of things. And that's one thing that the likes of Zidane, Mourinho and Pochettino are all lauded in three very different ways for. So it's, it's, it's difficult to say, well, the result's the same, therefore everything that went into it must be the same. Let me, that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they defended in different ways. One defensive system is getting a lot of plaudits. The other defensive system isn't getting the plaudits. Both defensive systems are good. What you'll find this season in the Champions League is the Mourinho philosophy of defending will win the Champions League. Mm. Before but he we called Klopp cautious last year and, and he seems to have done exactly the same thing. It's a double standard. Mm. Makes it tricky. I mean, it's also saying, obviously, no one's really criticising exclusively Mourinho's system. People are sort of, exclu- they're, they're really criticising why deploy that system when they feel like Manchester United could play more expansive football. No one's, really, no one's really going the opposite way, yeah. We, we were coming to Manchester United, but one more point on Tottenham. I understand what you're saying, Dave. The 5-3-2 that Pochettino set the team out in, there is a conservatism in a way about it. Um, although I'd argue that you know, there was an ambition to it. You know, like Chris has mentioned there, Lorente did create chances for Harry Kane. But on a broader point, as opposed to sort of comparing the the two systems, Pochettino's here and Mourinho's at the weekend. Talk to me about Pochettino's tactical approach because this is a manager who in his first season at Spurs was criticised for having a lack of a plan B, for not being adaptable, for not being flexible in his approach. And yet, I think we've seen last season, even more so this season, that that is present in his game. That is present in how he sets up this team and it's something to be admired. 
I think it's an evolution of Pochettino, and that's what's so exciting is that he's moving his side on. What I mentioned before, they're going to a more counter-attacking system. That's how they're playing this season. They're playing quite direct to um, Ericsson, uh, Kane, and Deli Ali when he's on the pitch. Um, but it, it, you know, it is, it's this sort of evolution of a, of a manager, a very, very good manager. And it, it's nice to see that he is moving the side on. He's integrating players like Harry Winks, who's done very well. Sissoko looks like a different player after being with Pochettino for maybe a year and a bit. Um, and Lorente, obviously, a good signing. But tactically, they're very good. You know, the back three, they can play the back four. They're, they're very flexible. And I think that's the biggest thing with Pochettino. You're starting to see that he's a very flexible manager. And that is only a good thing for, mm. you know, competing at the top. So, of course, when he joins PSG, they're going to win the Champions League. <laughs> or Real Madrid, maybe, as he suggested. But I'd say that that's not going to happen for a while. But, yeah, as you say, I think Spurs are a more flexible team. They're able to play in these different structures, is, I think, the way Pochettino phrased it. Um, and it's definitely something we were missing last season and has enabled us to not only get this result uh, at Real Madrid, but also beat Dortmund and look very likely, I'd say, to go through into knockout stages of the Champions League after a very disappointing campaign last season. Um, before we move on to Manchester United, uh, we've already discussed, I'd say, uh, we've got a question here coming in on Twitter from Super TK, who asks, Chris, uh, is Harry Winks the most naturally gifted player Spurs have? He had a very impressive first half performance, uh, at least against Real Madrid uh, in this game. Higher pass completion percentage, I believe, than Luka Modric, which Spurs fans seem to be very excited about. Is it's very positive to see him coming through into this first eleven now. Um, I think a lot of Spurs fans would have liked to see it happen earlier had it not been for his injury last year. But Harry Winks, the most naturally gifted Spurs player in this in this side. Uh, I, I can't answer that genuinely. Um, that's that's too too complicated. I think what he is, he's a, he's a very he's a very intelligent midfielder, um, and I think that sometimes is what England's missing in the middle of the park. Someone that always seeks to make the right decision. Now, that sounds very easy, but it's actually not um, because there are a lot of different options and opportunities. And yet with him, his ability to just maintain the ball, but also keep the momentum flowing, I think that's something that is is vastly underrated and and isn't, for my mind, actively present in the middle of the England team at the minute. I think you've got the likes of Jordan Henderson who can can run and run and run and has a, a fairly decent passing range. But when you actually need someone to, to put their foot on the ball a bit and just know when to give it short, when to give it long, how to move people around, I think that's what Winks does very well. And I think you look at that game against Spurs the other night, that was a huge test for him um, because he's essentially playing six at, at, uh, at the Bernabeu against some of the best midfielders in the world. And I think he more than hold his, held his own. Um, and I think... He, again, made a lot of the right decisions under pressure. That's the kind of thing you need. Um, of course, there's so many other obstacles he's going to have to navigate in his career, but this is a, a very promising sign, and I think it massively validates his call-up and, and inclusion last month, or, yeah, this month, whenever the, the England games were last. Manchester United, Dave. <laughs> we finally come on to a 1-0 win away at Benfica uh, thanks to an error by the goalkeeper uh, Marcus Rashford uh, the man with the goal that gave Manchester United the win um, once again though um, I saw what you might say is an overreaction uh, to this performance uh, coming off the back of Liverpool draw even Manchester United fans seem to be a little bit um, disappointed I mean you're laughing oh, it's funny we played 13 games this season We've won 10, kept nine clean sheets, we've lost a single game. Is and it it's nine like clean we've, sheets we've, out we've, of we've 12, is it? Out of 13 games. The wow. Super Cup, remember, we did lose that game. Some like Man United fans forget that we played the mighty <laughs> Real Madrid and lost. 
Um, but it's just funny. I find it funny. Like, you know, you play games. You have to play games. There's a lot of games in a season. You play, you know, you play Saturday, you play, you know, Wednesday, you play Saturday, Wednesday. So you go to the biggest game away from home all season against Liverpool. That's the biggest game for Man United. That's the, that means the most for the players. going to put a lot into that. Then you go away to Benfica, you fly to Benfica and you get a result which leaves you top of the group at nine points. Uh, with so the, the players that are out, you've got Rojo, Bay, Jones, Carrick, Fellaini, Rashford, Pogba, Ibrahimovic. That is a team minus a goalkeeper, a right back, and a right winger. Their players, Bay and Jones, are the first choice centre halves. Pogba and Fellaini would get into the first choice midfield. Um, Rashford as well, Zlatan Ibrahimovic over Lukaku. You know that's a flip of a coin. So to to, to be as successful as United have been this season has it, been good, and I'm happy with how United are playing. I thought. The problem with United's attack against Benfica was they were a bit very poor in wide areas. They kept on looking for cutbacks towards the edge of the area, which kind of fell into Benfica's hands in a way. They're playing a sort of 4-5-1-4-3-3, and they had three guys that pretty much were at the edge of the box. So they just missed the United player, or that was game over. But they, yeah, they weren't great in an attacking sense. Um, I think Henry Mkhitaryan needs a bit of a rest. Um, I would have rested him against Benfica, to be quite honest, because United have got a lot of games coming up, and you know it'd be good to get him back on form. And in an attacking sense, I think defensively, he's still putting in the yards, but... Going forward, he's not been the same type of you know elusive, creative, um, free player. So I think it's it's that. But a big thing is missing Ashley Young, and that is a big thing for United. If Ashley Young doesn't play, United are very poor in the final third because you need that width from the left wing from fullback, and he's a big big player. I was quite happy with um, the performance overall. You know, Benfica failed to create any meaningful chance apart from the the chance that Grimaldo created down the, the left wing. I thought he was fantastic at left fullback, and again Barcelona letting graduates go. I don't know what they're doing letting him go because he's, he's a very good player. And Jordi Alba, who's been in pretty poor form uh, before the start of this season, I think he's been very good this season, but he needed to. He's been poor for the last two seasons. So letting someone like Grimaldo go to Benfica, for me, just seems crazy. Whenever I've watched Grimaldo, I've been very impressed with how, he's, how he carries the ball, how he, how he dribbles, how he, how he tackles. You know, United failed to create a chance down the right-hand side um, yesterday. So it's one of these things where he's a top player. And if, you know, if a, a team needs a left-back, I'd probably go and buy him if you know, he's 22 years old. He's going to have a very, very good technical upbringing at Barcelona. So it's one of these things where maybe, you know, maybe a Manchester United, if Luke Shaw can't get back into the side, you know, Ashley Young needs to be replaced eventually. Can't be this important for the rest of his career. Yeah, can't be that. Is Shaw not not an option? Is Is he done and dusted there? No, I think he's got a season, but he's got until the end of the season, I'd say, to make an impact. And if he doesn't make an impact, then United need to look for a for a, a new option because you need at the world, you know, at the top level of world football, you need to have a good attacking right back and a good attacking left back. And if you can't have a consistent one, then that's a big problem. Um, is 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 it Damari Mitchell who's the youngster that played against Palace last season at left back? Yep. And he was he a winger that got shifted back? Is there anyone in the academy? Is that is guess what I'm trying to ask in a, in a, a subtle way is is there anyone that wouldn't cost the earth to bring in that you can actually have within the club already or is there, is there just no serviceable options? I think you need consistency. I think Luke Shaw is that option um, from a young level. I think uh, Mitchell's a, a good player. Whether you know he needs a he needs a bit of a you need a bounce. You need like sort of a you know a, a Danny Rose improvement under Pochettino to to get to that next level. It, it's possible, but at the same time. One of the, you know United need it now. United need a left fullback right now, um, or whenever Ashley Young leaves the club. Do United have to spend a massive amount every summer on somebody? You just need to recruit players. I don't think spending money matters anymore. Really, it's about if you get your player. Mm. No, but that's what I'm saying. Is there a point where like the the academy starts to service with any decent, not to like the level of class of '92, but I mean Rashford's come in the last few years, but then after that you're looking and thinking, well, who who's next? It doesn't seem like there's a which is mad because all I hear is that Man United have got loads of talent. So you've produced one of the best young players in world football. 
in Marcus Rashford. I think that's that's great for the, the next two years. Angel Gomez obviously is the next one coming in, but I think that's fine. I think you can't look further than that in you know recruitment. Obviously, you'd like a eleven players every season, but that ain't going to happen, is it? So producing someone like Marcus Rashford is a very is a good achievement. You're never going to get to a situation like the class of '92 where everything moves and all the pieces move into place, where there's lots of old players in the squad that can be moved on for you know a very talented generation of young players. That is an unachievable thing uh, in world football right now. Um, without having a real top academy, United obviously working on their academy. So you know, maybe in a few years that'll come true. Um, I think they've done a lot of good work. You know, new coach uh, under eighteen level, new recruitment and so forth. So it, it is a you know, it's a sort of a process. But at the end of the day, United have got to be competitive. Let me ask you this, uh, Dave, from James Sweat on Twitter, who says the last name is pronounced Sweat, just in case there's any doubt. Uh, he said, has Pogba's injury finally shown everyone just how important his creativity is? I don't think so. I think it's important mm. um, to James Sweaty. I think that it's a, just sweat. It's interesting how United can move without uh, Pogba if Ashley Young's on the pitch. I think that's a big thing because mm. he takes the creative burden and that's the problem. If United don't have Ashley Young on the pitch when Pogba's not on the pitch, then United feel it. I think that's the thing. I think that's what Mourinho did very well, bringing in Fellaini, playing next to Matic, and then getting two attacking fullbacks. And I think that would be something I'd like to see when Pogba's back. But again, that could be two attacking. Do mm. you think Pogba does join the, the four plus Valencia? So it, it's one of these things where it's all about balance for Man United. It's all about balance for Mourinho, and he's doing it quite well at the moment. But I think Pogba is a big miss. Pogba's you know, a, a world-class player. Overall, then, for the English clubs, they remain undefeated in the Champions League so far this season. It has been an impressive campaign so far. Harman Sandu writes in on Twitter saying, are the English clubs actually getting better in Europe or are these results showing false hope? What do you think, Lawrence? Certainly a good question. Um, why I don't quite understand why there would be false hope, maybe because they're beating opponents who aren't considered to be um, the very top quality. But then they have come up against some great... Well, they've also come up against some big names in there as well and done well. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to talk about any uh, body from the Premier League as sort of one at the moment because they're all very different styles. Mourinho yeah. is very different to Klopp. Uh, you know, Pochettino is very different. Conte is also quite different. Arsenal, obviously very different. They're playing at a slightly different level to everyone else. <laughs> um, it does, it does but, look low, like every one of the English teams is going to get through to the knockout stages at least right now. Ben Fleming says, which team do you think I I, I think will go the furthest? Difficult, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think Dave's probably right in saying Manchester United. I think the, the, the styles and the, the pragmatism of Mourinho. Well, yeah, because I think the styles and the pragmatism of Mourinho, it, it'll, that will totally rely on whether Mourinho gets the players back that he needs because obviously you can't go deep in a... I mean, they might be able to go deep as a classic Mourinho move if they did, but, <laughs> but it's very difficult to go deep if... I mean, um, if you can't, uh, if you can't rotate your team, because like, I think course. certainly later on in the season, there's you know there's going to be a lot more games back to back, makes it very difficult then to face very intensive teams, which they will be in the later stage of the competition. I mean, and we, also uh, do this sort of put those sort of um, uh, put those sort of performances in week in week out. I mean, we, we'd probably expect the two Manchester clubs to go the furthest. Uh, Chelsea have obviously got certain issues right now. It'd be interesting to see if they can be resolved. Liverpool and Spurs, I think there's still question marks over whether they will be able to, to step up to this elite level in the knockout stages, at least. Um, How much about the draw, really, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's really... It's, it's, Who's going to finish know, top, etc. You'd expect United... I mean, City be incredibly impressive in the way they've been dominating. Mm. But I think it's whether they can continue that fitness-wise whether also someone works out a way to play against them, because that's certainly been the case with 
most of Pep Guardiola's sides is there's been one clever manager who's faced at some well, point in the season who's found a, an X factor that they can exploit in some way. Well, Gary Goals writes in at Dayson 1996, long time listener. Uh, another great question. I mean, can we see two English clubs in the Champions League semis? Is it too early? What do you think, Chris, given these positive performances, do we need to wait to see how the draw pans out in the knockout rounds before we start saying, yes, they're going to be in the semi-finals, the final, etc.? Before who are going to be in the semi-final, sorry? English clubs. Two English clubs. Um, no, I, I think I think these things are so cyclical. Um, you look at like the back end of the last decade, that's where like English dominance was easy to see because I think you had, at one stage it was three of the four semi-finalists were English. Um, I think this is the best season of the last three or four, undeniably. Um, I don't think it's just because a few of the clubs have invested heavily in their their starting 11s. I think it is also a, a byproduct of the fact that they actually have coaches that, well, not all English, which is slightly concerning, or not any of them English even, um, have very clear identities and have had the time now to implement them. So, so Klopp's had is it two years now. Uh, Pochettino has been there a few years Guardiola's in his second year Mourinho's in his second year it means you're able to get into a little bit more of the the, the minutiae a little bit more of the, the detail on these things and, and maybe you've got some more of the players in that you want and I think that's the thing momentum and, and um, inertia and those kind of things do play a factor in these I know that the competition is, is year on year but actually you can probably trace the genesis of when a team starts to put together its run to win the Champions League a little bit further back than that. That brings an end to our Champions League review then. Uh, Guys, stay tuned for part two. It's the Fan League Preview. Right, it's time for part two. It's our Fan League Weekend Preview in association with, you guessed it, Fan League. That's how it works. Um, We predict... 13 of the biggest English matches coming up this weekend. Uh, we either go for a home win, a away win, a draw. Um, if you get 10 right, guys, you win. If you get 13 right, you win big. That's how it works on family. We're doing pretty well. We're doing all right in the past few weeks. Um, let's see if we can uh, we can smash it today. It's me and Lawrence doing the predictions. Remember, if you want to take us on in the family league, you can join. The link is in the description of this podcast. Uh, remember, family donate 10% of their revenue to youth and grassroots football projects. So it's a great company to get involved with. So do go and click on the link if you want to take us on. Uh, let's get straight into it. Uh, in the Premier League on Saturday, Lawrence, we've got Swansea, Leicester. Uh, Leicester, of course, having fired Craig Shakespeare. Um, yeah. I believe Michael Appleton is taking over for this game. Um, Swansea win, though, surely, at home. I, I originally thought Swansea win as well. I, I guess mainly that's partly because I don't know what to go on as to how Leicester are going to play. I, it's a bit of a weird one because some people are saying, well, uh, I think it was Richard Keyes who said, uh, uh, stay British or something ridiculous um, about Leicester. And I thought, well, you won the league with an Italian. so Yeah, that worked out pretty well, didn't it? I guess that, yeah, I'm going to go, and, and in many ways, Swansea have stayed British. Uh, so I'm going to go with Swansea on this one, and uh, <laughs> and good old Paul. Let's okay, see what he says. Okay, we'll I go for a... Swansea. Swansea win two one. We'll go for a home win then. Uh, Stoke Bournemouth also coming up this week, and um, both not doing particularly well this season so far. Bournemouth especially. Um, this this has got a draw written all over it, hasn't it? 
kind of does have draw written all i think what did i go for in uh, another preview that i was thinking of? Oh. uh stoke bournemouth i said yeah one 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 okay yeah we'll go for a draw uh newcastle crystal palace a resurgent crystal palace of course who who beat chelsea last weekend um but newcastle are impressing so far this season uh morale is high there especially now it's up for sale so maybe a home win for this one for newcastle I think a home win on this one. Uh, Rafa Benitez has never lost to a previous England manager. Is that so, right? He's not. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll stick with the trend then. Let's go for. So a let's home win. let's go with that. And and also, I think Roy Hodgson's organisation. Uh, I, I don't want to be do a Rory Jennings on this, but um, you know, I think it can out trump be, uh, be out trumped by Rafa Benitez's organisation. Yeah, if, if you're not quite sure what Lawrence is referring to, there do go and uh, just search Rory's name on Twitter and you'll see his uh, rather interesting prediction of the Palace game last weekend oh, which didn't go too well for him um, we've also got to be Man- fair, he did really rub it in didn't he yes he did really he couldn't leave himself any leeway for sort of <laughs> there was no leeway for going pedaling, backpedaling or anything and that's why like that was literally so just beautiful Roy Hodgson is the worst thing of all time yeah <laughs> let's talk Manchester City Burnley 99% of family users are going for a home win for Manchester City here just 1% going for a home draw, strangely enough. Um, what do you reckon, Lawrence? Is this going to be another five, six, seven goals for Man City at home? I don't think it's going to go that far because I think Deitch is probably going to um, keep it conservative. But I also obviously can't see a draw and Man City are so dominant in the way that they play right now. Not only the dominance, but also the fact they just move the opposition around so much. I'm I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, it's, it's, it's 100% that. Okay, we'll go for that. Uh, we've also got Huddersfield against Manchester United. Manchester United away from home, so we would expect them to uh, park the bus, as it were, to try and get that point away at Huddersfield. I'm being pathetic, uh, of course. Th- yeah, that's good. Huddersfield. I, I sort of thought, wait, who, who did he say? Huddersfield, um, they had a really good start, but they, they've really fallen off in recent weeks. They haven't won for a while, they haven't scored for a while as well, so surely this is going to be a Manchester United away win. Yeah, I, I think it is going to be a Manchester United away win. We'll see. I think it's going to be one of those... Mourinho resurgencies. He's four points in a week, uh, a week in which he's been heavily criticised for the way that he plays. It's going to be one of those old Mourinho, you know, Manchester United score three or four and um, he says, what conservative football? And everyone goes, yeah, good old Joseph. <laughs> um, Southampton, West Brom as well. Uh, the final Premier League game on Saturday. I, li- I like the look of this one. Southampton. Uh, I'm going to go Southampton. Home win. Mm, it's... I'm tempted to say a draw myself, but what we'll do is we'll go, we'll go for a home win, but we'll uh, we'll use one of our our opportunities to hedge Bankers. the result to go for a, a hedge draw it. as well. Uh, Sunday, we've got a couple of big games. Um, we'll start, of course, with Everton, Arsenal, Everton at home. Um, again, struggled this season. Arsenal, though, coming off the back of that Watford defeat, they seem to have lost a little bit of momentum themselves. Uh, I'm tempted to go for a, I'm tempted to go for an Arsenal win here. I think. You know, as much as they're struggling in recent weeks, Everton, just uh, awful right now. I think they're just going to edge it, aren't they? Um, and also, in the in the weeks running up to that, uh, Arsenal looked much more dominant, quite different. I don't think Everton are going to put up the same challenge uh, and tactical um, tactical challenge mm. that the likes of Watford did. So, yeah, let, let's go with uh, an Arsenal. Yeah, game. I couldn't believe Everton stole a point. Um, against Brighton last week. I think they were incredibly poor from what I saw. So I think Arsenal are going to have enough to put them away. Uh, finally, well, it's, also, it's also, the, it, uh, one, it's a shame we can't sort of bet on individual scorers on that one because it's 15 years since, since the October that Wayne Rooney scored that 
famous goal which announced him to the Premier League. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can rekindle that. I said 2-1 on another preview, so I'm going to go 2-1 as well in Arsenal. Win. Win. Arsenal away win then. Uh, finally, we've got the big game of the weekend. Lawrence Mighty mm. on against your team, Liverpool, at Wembley. This promises to be a fascinating one. Uh, how are you feeling going into this one? Obviously, uh, the draw of the weekend was disappointing result, but morale surely high after that thrashing in the in midweek in the Champions League. Do you think Liverpool are going to come and attack? Is that what Spurs can expect from Jurgen Klopp? I think so. I think Liverpool have historically attacked Pochettino's, especially Klopp's uh, Liverpool have attacked Pochettino's sides. So let's see how they... Uh, choose to approach this one. They were utterly dominant against Maribor. I think Maribor pretty much left themselves open to that, though. We won't see the same against Spurs. Uh, you know, if Liverpool go 2 0 up, I doubt that they're going to go for the same gay abandon that they did mm. um, in Slovenia. So, so let's see. I, I think with Liverpool and Spurs, it's like a friendly derby, isn't it? It's not a local derby, it's just a friendly derby mm. where both the sides sort of respect the football the other one plays. They know that they're not sort of the main rivals from each other's two cities. So I think there's a, a, and also there's sort of a respectful uh, nature between Pochettino and Klopp. So let's see, I reckon it's going to be a two or draw. Um, Ooh, I, like I'm, I'm, I was even talking about maybe Harry Kane scoring in October, but let's see. Oh, I'm tempted with the bias to say home win, but I think a draw is something we can definitely hedge for. Things to be very interesting. Spurs haven't really played well at Wembley this season, um, in the league at least, I'd argue potentially their best performance was against Chelsea. Seems very uh, very slow, seems very pedestrian uh, when we play at home, albeit against teams that sit back. I think with Liverpool potentially going to be on the attack or something that would suit Spurs. I certainly think it's going to be an open game. And of course, after that big result, I'd say, in Madrid in midweek, I think Spurs are going to be high on confidence. I think... I want to go for Spurs win, but like I say, we'll, we'll hedge it. I think it's going to be a very interesting game nonetheless. Let's go for home win and we'll hedge for a draw as well. Finally, we've got some championship, uh, championship predictions to, uh, championship. to go The old championship. Uh, Bristol City against Leeds. Uh, Leeds were fantastic at the start of the season, but they've lost three in a row now. So it's hard to see past Bristol, seeing as they're at home. So we'll go for a Bristol home win. Uh, we've also yep. got Bolton against QPR. Uh, Bolton had lost eight consecutive games in all competitions uh, before last weekend. So they've managed to uh, stop the rot, as it were. Um, QPR, though, I think well, I'm going to go for an away win here. Um, they've been a bit unproductive. I agree. But we'll go for QPR. Uh, we've also got Villa against Fulham. Um, this is an interesting one. Aston Villa have been a little bit patchy under Steve Bruce. I think this one's going to be close, but I want, I want to go for Fulham. I think they've impressed uh, so far this season in spells. So we'll go for them. We've also got Millwall versus Birmingham uh, on Saturday as well. This one's tough to predict, isn't it? We've got 30% of, we've got exactly 33% of uh, fan league users going for a home win. We've got 32% going for a uh, draw. And we've got 35% going for an away win. So pretty evenly split there. No one seems to know what's going to happen. It's a tough one to call. Uh, what should we go for? Should we? This is one we've got ahead, you'd say. Let's go for... Edge. We'll go for edge home advantage edge. for Millwall and we'll hedge it with a draw as well. And finally, we've Brilliant. got Ipswich against Norwich. Uh, again, Ipswich can't seem to get oh, their form derby. together. Yeah, can't seem to get their form together. Ipswich, though, under McCarthy, they've been a little bit inconsistent. Um, Norwich haven't lost in their last six games, though. Three wins and three draws there. Uh, let's go for... I like Mick McCarthy, so I'm going to base on an emotional response and go for a home win and hedge for the draw as well. Gabby, with that? 
Fair enough. Yeah, I'm okay. happy with that. I also, okay. I also like Mick McCarthy. And I also think um, you just, I don't know, you just, you just wonder, don't you, what can Mick McCarthy do to get back to the Premier League? Well, maybe we'll see him one day with Ipswich, potentially this season. Uh, if they get three points here, that would be a good way to go about it. Uh, guys, that is our family preview. Do get involved by clicking the link in the description of the podcast. Take us on. If you think you can do better, you can challenge us and join the Front Free League. Uh, it's very simple, so do get involved. Until Monday, when we'll be back with the weekend review, as always. Uh, Lawrence, where can the whole, where can the listeners find you? That was it. Oh, uh, you can go find me at Lozcast. L-O-Z-C-A-S-T. Lovely. I thought this was only part two, so I, I mean, that, that was a snappy finish. But right. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Do go and follow me there. Uh, no <laughs> doubt for my triumphant bragging as Spurs beat Liverpool this weekend at White Hart Lane. Uh, and we'll see you on Monday to discuss it all. Until then, enjoy the weekend's football. 